the third hour of the day. That means that it's about nine o'clock in the morning. And as in this, that day, as it is in this day, while it is not impossible for someone to be drunk at that hour of the day, it's unusual. We can say because that that kind of foolishness is usually something that people like to cloak in darkness. And so it's something that we do at night in general. I don't mean we as in you and I, but people. And where some people would give some manner of leeway to believe that someone might be drunk at night, to believe that they would be drunk in the morning is a whole new level of foolishness. And Peter hits, hits on that. He says, you, 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 are you not really paying attention? It's, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These people are not drunk as you suppose. But he doesn't allow it to remain there to say, well, you're just mistaken, but rather he gives interpretation by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gives interpretation to the events that are taking place before their very eyes. He says, this isn't just some random thing that has happened. This is exactly what God said would happen. He said it through the prophet Joel. That in the last days, that even itself is a particular interpretation of Peter because Joel doesn't necessarily say in the last days. He says in those days. But here, Peter gives commentary himself. He gives interpretation and declares that those days that Joel were talking about were the very days that they were living in and that those days were in fact the last days. He's saying with definitive authority that a transition has taken place, that in the ascension of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ into heaven and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit down from heaven upon his people, that a great transition has taken place and we have now moved from one era into a new era and that that particular era is the definitive era, the last of all the eras, that there is no further era to come that we are looking for except for the promised return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So much so that we can say that the church has lived in the last days from the time of the day of Pentecost until now. That we continue in those last days. And the prophecy from Joel is astounding. Because if you remember throughout the Old Testament and all the historical narratives of the Old Testament, we see something happening very particular with uh, reference to the works of of that third person of the Trinity in the Old Testament, don't we? What do we see happen with the Holy Spirit? We see the Holy Spirit come and rest upon this person or that person. He comes and rests upon Saul and then leaves Saul and rests 
upon David. We see him resting upon Elijah and Elisha and all throughout the Old Testament. We see the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit did not begin to exist on the day of Pentecost any more than Jesus began to exist in the incarnation, but rather we see him working in a particular way. Well, he will move into a particular area, rest upon a particular person for a particular purpose, and then it seems as he is lifted away. But Joel says that's not always going to be the case. There's coming a day when God is going to, through great gifts of grace pour out his spirit on his people in such a way that no longer will the spirit come and rest upon a person and abandon them, but rather he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh in such a way that he will then never leave or forsake them again. And things are going to happen. It's not going to be merely that this one person for all people in that era will speak the word of the Lord until the day that they die and God will raise up one more. But rather, the word of the Lord will be poured out upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, he says. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is Astounding! Never in the history of God's people had anything worked like this. It was always looking for that one person. But hear me, that one person, the definitive person had come. It was Jesus. And we are not looking for another, for he is the one who was promised. And rather, now, in this new era, God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Which means what? That it wasn't merely that Peter was going to stand and bear witness about Christ. Or even Peter and James and John. For there were 120 gathered in the upper room that day. And Peter says that the promise that they received, the same outpouring of the spirit that they received, was for all those that God would call to himself. And so he says that these things were being fulfilled. Notice also the great apocryphal signs that Joel says will accompany this time, that he will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And Peter is saying, this is that day. This language, this apocryphal language that Joel uses here is used throughout the Old Testament to mark those changing of seasons and times and eras. And here, Peter provides the biblical interpretation of Joel chapter 2. Which means what? It means that we are not waiting for a further fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. We have that fulfillment here in Acts chapter 2. The water, as it were, has been turned on. And we are great beneficiaries of that gift that God gave to the church on that day. And so we see 
Now, Peter has given an answer for what's occurred. They're not drunk, but this is actually exactly what God himself said that he would do ahead of time. And don't you love that God does that? How many times did he say, behold, I'm going to do a new thing. And before it comes to pass, I'm going to tell you about it. Why? So that when it happens, you won't have to guess. You won't have to guess. There, there was going to be no question for the disciples after this day. At the end of this day of Pentecost and all these things that transpired and the wind and the fire and the tongues, the preaching of the gospel and 3,000 souls being saved, they were not going to get together in that room again and look at each other and go, so, so is that it? Or, or do we need to like gather back up and, and wait a bit longer? No, they knew. They knew because God had already declared ahead of time what he was going to do so that when it happened, they could see the signs, they could mark the day, they could know this is in fact exactly what God had promised to us. And of course, the witness of the spirit that had been poured out upon them would bear witness to them as well. And so Peter stands and after he has given explanation of these events and he turns his focus on these people that are gathered and begins the most seeker-sensitive sermon in the New Testament. No, he doesn't. Because the very first thing that he says he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to mark that three separate times Peter says, this Jesus, this Jesus, not, not another Jesus. I remind you that Jesus, in the Greek, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, or Joshua, is a common name. like Mike. Everywhere I go if I have to check in somewhere and I tell them my name is Mike, I'm always the guy they have to ask for a last letter or last, a last initial. Mike H. Because who knows how many other Mikes have checked in at the same time. There's Mike A and Mike B and Mike H and who else knows what else. It was a common name and there was no mistake about which Jesus Peter was referring to. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, buried, and by this same spirit that has been poured out on us has been raised from the dead. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because it's the same people gathered here 50 days later that were gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. It was before these very same people that Pontius Pilate brought out this Jesus and placed him before the people and said, you know, it is tradition that I should give to you one person. And who do you take for yourselves? Do you take this Jesus or Barabbas? And the people cried out, give us Barabbas. Would someone please let my brother in the door? Thank you. 
Then he says, what shall I do with him? And what did they cry out with one voice? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Peter's not going to let them off the hook. He says, this Jesus attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In fact, it was no, there was no mistaking it. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and as Jesus comes to walk alongside them after his resurrection and feigns a sort of ignorance about the events that have transpired that they're talking about with one another. Remember the incredulity that they respond to Jesus with, like, who are you? Where have you been? Are you walking on the same road from us away from Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened here with this man they called Jesus of Nazareth? They're incredulous because there was no one who didn't know what had taken place at that time. And so here Peter says, you yourselves know this Jesus and listen to what he says. It's beautiful combination of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility where he says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it so as I said with a bit of sarcasm, the most seeker-sensitive sermon in the New Testament, I'm, I'm joking, why? Because Peter immediately points his finger at these people and, and, and says, you did it. You crucified him. You are the ones that cried out for it. You are the ones that empowered the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the rulers of the temple to take him out, to allow him to be turned over to the Romans, to be crucified. You did it. And yet even so, it was God's plan. It was God's plan, why? Because it was through that very crucifixion that God was offering up the sacrificial lamb. And their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened to what God was doing right before their eyes. Peter, after he's already exposited for us, Joel chapter two turns his attention to Psalm 16. In verses 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16, showing how that through the prophetic word of David, who himself both died and was buried, that David was not speaking about himself, but rather by the Spirit was speaking about the Christ who would never be abandoned to hates or to see corruption. Instead, what happened? David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, verse 31. 
that he was not abandoned or would not see corruption. This Jesus, not another one, the same one, the same one from Nazareth, the same one that you cried out should be crucified. This same Jesus, God himself raised up. And he says of that, we are all witnesses. We are doing exactly what Jesus said. We are filled with power on this day to be his witnesses. It's interesting. If you look back at this word witness, both here and in Acts 1-8, which we already referenced earlier, the word witness there is where we get our word for martyr. That there was a sense in which Jesus was saying that you would be filled with such boldness to make a stand and declare your allegiance for me in such a way that those who reject you will seek to take your life and yet you will speak nonetheless. And here, Peter makes a stand essentially saying, we are here to proclaim his name to you even upon pangs of death. That very thing that Peter desired to do for Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, but was powerless to do on his own. Remember? No, Jesus. I will not betray you. Rather, I will die with you. On that night, he could not. But on this day, he could do nothing else. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. How can we turn to a passage like the one in Philippians chapter 4 where it says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I cannot do those things on my own except by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And here we see Peter living this out. He bears witness to Jesus' resurrection, but also to his ascension. Because Jesus was not merely brought from mortal death to mortal life, but he was raised to immortality in such a way that we could say that he was not merely raised, but exalted. And he was glorified, even as he said to Mary, don't, don't grab a hold of me just yet because I've not yet been glorified. That Jesus was raised, exalted. He was glorified above all others because he was raised as the first fruits. Even as at this time of Pentecost, they were celebrating what? The first fruits. Jesus had been raised as the first fruits, but he was not merely raised, he was exalted, he was glorified, he ascended not from an earthly burial to an earthly throne, but it was exalted even to the place of highest heaven. Here, Peter turns his attention to Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in all of the Bible because it bears such weight for all those who belong to the Lord, because it is here that it is said that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father 
until he makes every enemy his footstool. Peter says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Here it is. This Jesus whom you crucified. And here's where we see again the work of the Holy Spirit. Because on the day that Jesus was crucified, all these people watched the error of their ways with blindness. They saw the things that transpired, and even though the earth shook and was covered with darkness, even though the curtain in the temple was torn in two, here 50 days later, they still came to celebrate in complete ignorance. But upon hearing the wonderful works of God through the mouths of the apostle, upon hearing the preaching of God's word through Peter as he's been filled with the spirit, suddenly something changes, something shifts. And these people who were before seemingly as deaf and dumb and blind as a block of wood, maybe perhaps more accurately, a big hunk of rock. Now they say what? Because they were cut to the heart, they said, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What changed? Here they are, in a certain sense, being rained down upon by this great fount of the Holy Spirit that's being poured out. The water is splashing on them. They're getting wet, so to speak. They're feeling the effect of this great gift of God, and the Holy Spirit is doing another thing that Jesus promised that he would do. Yes, he would empower the apostles to be his witnesses, to be filled with power and boldness to declare their allegiance to Christ and what Christ had done. But Jesus said in John chapter 16 that there was something else that the Spirit would do. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, if you want to look there quickly. Jesus, before his death, is speaking with the disciples. He's trying to tell them ahead of time the things that are going to happen. Verse number seven, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, Jesus says, this is what he's going to do. He will do what? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember the sequence of events that Peter had just walked them through, that they had crucified this Jesus. The greatest sin that has ever been committed on the face of the planet. 
And yet this Jesus that they crucified was resurrected. Why? Because he is the holy and righteous one. And in his resurrection, he did not merely ascend to a heavenly throne to reign over, or excuse me, to an earthly throne to reign over earthly rulers, but he was exalted to such a place that he sits on the highest throne above every ruler, above every authority, for he is not just king, he is not just Lord, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. So that even as he came to earth and bound the strong man, he has ascended to heaven and reigns over every ruler and power and authority, such that none other now has any power or authority except at the acquiescence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is Christ Jesus himself. Sin righteousness and judgment for even the ruler of this world is now judged as Christ himself sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning until every enemy is his footstool. So the Spirit came and empowered the apostles with boldness to stand as witnesses for Christ but he also came and we see him here now convicting those who were before as deaf and dumb and blind as a hunk of rock. Now their hearts are cut to the quick and they are softened by the same Holy Spirit who convicts their hearts of sin. What must we do? What shall we do? Peter had essentially already given them the answer. God had given them the answer in Joel chapter 2. What did it say? That in those days that Peter had just told them had come to pass, what? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But here in the midst of their panic, in the midst of their conviction, and is this not what happens for all those who come to Christ. Not everyone needs the same amount of conviction to get there. and It's not the amount of conviction that matters. It's the response to that conviction. But are we not all cut to the quick? Are we all not? We don't come to this place and merely go, oh yeah, Jesus is, is awesome. I want to follow him. That's great. But rather, our hearts also are cut to the quick because the same spirit that shows us Jesus as highly and exalted also shows us our own sin and how that we are separated from the very God that is angry with our sin. And praise God, the same spirit then directs our attention to that exalted Christ to see him as the propitiation for our sins. So Peter says to them what he says, repent. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and what? You'll then be second class citizens next to me and the rest of the apostles. 
No, 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 no. This same gift that has been poured out today, you will also receive. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Though we are not looking for another day of Pentecost to happen in our lifetime, yet we are great beneficiaries of that same gift. That same spirit which emboldens and empowers for witness for Christ is the same spirit that God has poured out on everyone here who is called on the name of the Lord. And that same spirit that gives conviction of sin is the same spirit that will convict your own heart of sin and direct you to Christ. For that is the next thing that the spirit does. And I love here that Peter, in the midst of standing up for Jesus, in the midst of preaching this first New Testament sermon, doesn't wax eloquently about the day that he walked on water with Jesus. He doesn't talk about the time that he got to stand next to Jesus while they handed out the bread and, and the fish. The focus was not to be about Peter and what God had done through Peter, but rather the focus was on Jesus. And this again is something that the Spirit does, for the Spirit loves to glorify and exalt Jesus. In that same chapter that we were just in, in John's Gospel, John chapter 16, Jesus goes on in verses 12 through 15, again speaking of what the Holy Spirit will do. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is, again, what the Holy Spirit does. He emboldens with power to help his followers, his disciples, make a stand as witnesses for Christ. He convicts us and the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he also always, always, always points us to Jesus. He glorifies Jesus Christ. When we are filled with the Spirit, we lose that sense of it being all about me. And that is the temptation of the pride that the enemy would love to sow in all of our hearts, that it would become about me, me, me. And instead, the Holy Spirit comes and constantly redirects our attention back to Jesus back to Jesus, back to Jesus, because it is, after all, truly all about him, is it not? And so these people come, they are cut to the quick, they ask the Apostle Peter, what must we do? He gives them instruction, and we see one more thing that the Spirit does that I want to draw your attention to today. 
What did Jesus say? He says, in just a little while, I am going away. And where I go, you cannot come. For I'm going to prepare a place for you. But he says something to his disciples. I believe this is John chapter 14. He says, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the comforter, the cum forte, the one who comes in strength. I will send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And here we see that as the Holy Spirit is poured out on this day, and there are those around the epicenter of this that are beginning to get wet from this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to keep using that same metaphor. And the Spirit is working on their lives, bringing conviction of their sin. He's bringing them to this place of repentance. And what was it that drew them? That though they were guilty, yet there was still a promise that God had held out for them, that if they would turn away from that sin, they would repent of that sin, that they would call upon the name of this Jesus, the very one that they before said, crucify them. Now they can lift up a voice that says what they said before, Hosanna, come save now, Lord, that he would hear them from heaven, forgive them of their sin, and bring them into himself. And what happens? On that day, Jesus does not leave those people alone. But he brings them to himself. And the Spirit on that day did what the Spirit still does on this day. He creates in all those who hear and by faith believe in Jesus through the gospel. He creates a living church. He raises the spiritually dead to spiritual life. Not as individuals left to their own devices, but rather as family members that are knit together by the love of the Father himself through the grace of the Son. And every single one of us receive those benefits only through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When we, when Joel will stand today with his arm outstretched and say those words from Scripture over us, it's not just very beautiful words. It is the truth of how salvation comes to our hearts every single day. The love of God, the grace of the Son, coming to us through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the gate, but the Spirit is the one that draws us through that gate so that we can find pasture as the sheep of his fold. And we see here the Spirit of God doing the same thing that he does today, empowering with boldness for witness, convicting of sin, exalting Christ and creating 
in the life of every believer through his own appointment and fellowship, the knitting together of the living church of Jesus Christ, raised from death to life. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work that we should never take for granted, but rather be grateful for every single day, because without the working of the Holy Spirit, we are lost. But rather, as Paul will declare in Romans chapter 8, the life of the Christian is a life that is meant to be walked in the Spirit every single day. So may God, by His Spirit, continue to do these things which we see here. May He embolden His people as witnesses for Him. And it may be that you remember at once upon a time the kind of zeal that you had in your heart to declare the excellency of Jesus to other people. May God, by His Spirit, renew that boldness and that zeal. It may be that there seems to be areas of your heart that once seemed so soft and sensitive to the leading of God in righteousness, but because of sin, those areas feel like they have become hard and dull. May the Spirit, through His conviction, convict us of that sin, not that we may be condemned, but rather through His conviction be reminded of God's kindness that leads us to repentance and ask Him to make us soft and sensitive to His leading again. Maybe you're here today and you have never repented of sin. May the Spirit of Almighty God convict your heart of sin, reveal to you in every way, in the most loving way, how you are in need of a Savior. And may you also repent of that sin and in faith believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior. may he in this church, in this body, do such a work in us together that by his leading we cannot but help but continually exalt and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Trusting and believing and taking him at his word that as he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And may we then together, not just me, but we together see that fruitful harvest as God by the Spirit raises the dead to life and knits them together with us, a living church, as a testimony to his faithfulness and glory. Amen? May it be done. May it be so. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray today? Father, we thank you for this Pentecost Sunday, a day where we turn our attention to those events that transpired of which we are great beneficiaries of. We likewise have received the gift of your Holy Spirit poured out on us 
and in us because of your love and kindness towards us. May we not take the Holy Spirit for granted. May we not just be afraid of those things which we do not understand, but may we ask you every day that we might become more intimately acquainted with this third person of the Godhead which you have given to us. Holy Spirit, we pray and ask you today personally to have your way in and through us individually as believers and together as this unique family that you have knit together and called Redemption Hill. May you have your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion and may we all today by that same fellowship of the Holy Spirit feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. God bless you.